Good morning. Certainly is an honor and privilege to gather together in fellowship this morning. I want to thank each of you for being in attendance today. Uh, if I don't know you, uh, I would love to get to know you. I'm Pastor Brandon. I'm the associate pastor here at Christ Covenant Fellowship, which means I get to do all the stuff Pastor Tyler doesn't feel like doing. Just kidding. Just kidding. But on a serious note, I would love to meet you if you're visiting with us for the first time or maybe you've been coming for a few weeks and I haven't got the chance to introduce myself to you. Make sure you find me before you leave uh, this afternoon. I would love to connect with you before you get out of here or introduce yourself to one of our members. They would love to connect with you as well and tell you a little bit more about what's going on here in the life of the church. So if you have your uh, Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be continuing our study here in Paul's letter to the Philippians, and it's been a great study thus far. It's been very helpful for me personally, very fruitful, very beneficial for me uh, personally as we've gone through this study, and I hope that it's been helpful for you in your walk and your journey with Jesus Christ as well. In this letter, Paul's hit on a lot of different themes, right? He's talked about joy and suffering, and he's written about unity within the church and uh, having one mind, being unified together, um, walking in a manner that's worthy of Christ Jesus. So this morning we'll be in Philippians chapter 4 and we'll be covering verses 8 and 9. Just two verses there, but these verses contain some imperatives that are of critical importance for the life of the believer. And in my time of preparation, as I studied over these two verses the last couple of weeks, I've been personally challenged and convicted by these verses, and I believe that God plans to challenge us this morning collectively as the body of Christ. So what I want to do is just read these two verses, and then I want to pray and invite God to bless our time, or ask him, I should say, to bless our time through the teaching of his word. So let us read Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. I'm reading for the English Standard Version, and it reads, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I have an incredible task before me this morning to preach your word as a limited, sinful, dependent individual. God, I could never speak to the glory that you deserve. I'm not qualified. I'm not able to give you the glory that you are worthy of. So, Father, I am asking, I am pleading with you to intervene during this time, that through the teaching of your word, God, you would use me to glorify yourself, that you would challenge, exhort, yet encourage and motivate your people, the body of Christ, to live for you, to be those that make you known amongst the world. God, I pray that you would teach us during this time, that as I speak, you would increase, that I would decrease, God, that you would give me a supernatural strength uh, to move forward this morning in the teaching of your word. I pray that we are uh, challenged by this, but I pray most of all, God, that you are uplifted during this time. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So if you were with us last week, uh, then you know we covered verses 2 through 7 in chapter 4. And what we found is that Paul is writing in this section, and he's addressing two specific believers, uh, Yodia and Syntyche, and he's moving them towards unity and agreement in the Lord as they work through an external conflict. And after addressing this external conflict, Paul begins to cover the internal conflict that believers face, specifically the struggles of anxiety. So if you were here last week, Pastor Tyler did a wonderful job of walking us through those verses. So what I want to focus on first is how that section, verses 2 through 7, really connects to these verses, verses 8 
and 9. So let's look back quickly at, I'll just read verses 6 and 7. And it reads, Do not be anxious about every, anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what Paul writes there specifically in verse 7 is what we're looking at here. Paul writes that the peace of God guards not only your hearts, but your minds as well. And our minds are going to be essential to all that we discuss here today. You know, it's been said that the human brain is the most complicated physical object in all of the universe. Now, whether you believe that or not, whether you believe that the, uh, that's true, the human mind, no doubt, is an astonishing creation, is it not? I mean, there have been hundreds of thousands, even millions of doctors and philosophers and counselors that have committed themselves to studying the human mind with all of its intricacies. I mean, it's truly a remarkable thing. You see, the fact that God has created us with the ability to think deeply and critically, to have these complex thoughts and emotions is really a testament to God's glory. I mean, if the human mind is this incredible, think about how amazing creator God must be. And while it is a beautifully complex creation, the human mind is to be guarded and stewarded well. I believe that so much of the Christian's battle consists of the battle for the mind. As believers, we are at war for our minds. This world, this culture that surrounds us, is, it's constantly bombarding us with these contradicting messages, messages that are antithetical to what the Bible teaches. Right? And the world has no shortage of ammunition. They have a bunch of platforms for which to uh, have those messages infiltrate your mind, right? Social media platforms through movies, television, music, books, magazines. There's plenty of ways to get their messages out there. And the goal of a world that is anti-God, a world that is hostile to Christ and his gospel, their goal is to manipulate your mind and what you believe by first controlling your thoughts. Right? And guess what? In Paul's day, the world was really no different. They didn't have the social media outlets and all of these things, but it was the same. It was very much the same in Paul's day. You have to remember that the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of believers that lived in a Greco-Roman, anti-God dominated culture. So what does Paul do? He encourages the saints there at Philippi to consider their thought life, to have their minds focused on things that are befitting of God's redeemed. You know, the more I read the Bible, the more I study the scriptures, I am convinced that God cares about our minds. There's so many verses that address the thinking of believers, right? Now, there's no way that I could read all of them, but I just wanted to read a couple of them. Romans 12, too. Right? I'm sure most of us in here know that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. You guys are sharp. Amen. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Be sober-minded. And then, of course, I think to the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as he's asked about the greatest commandment. What does he say? The first and the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your what? All of your mind. You see, Christ informs his followers that our minds must be actively engaged when loving God. Friends, don't be fooled. What you think about matters. And here's why. Because your thoughts, you see, the things that you think about will eventually manifest through your behaviors. Or in other words, let me put it this way. What you ponder on is what you will practice. Right? So I've titled this message, Think on These Things. Think on these things. So here's a great place to stop and, and really ask yourself some questions. What is your mind constantly feeding on? What are you constantly entertaining? What are you constantly thinking about? What are some things that you're allowing into your mind? And again, the reality is that these thoughts, these things will eventually saturate your being. What you think about often becomes 
what you do, right? King Solomon says it this way in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So he is. So this is why it's so important for Christians, by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, to win the battle of the mind. We must be cognizant of the forces at work that are constantly attempting to take root in our mind, to take hold of our thoughts. We must be vigilant in our thought life. You see, the Apostle Paul understood the importance of the believer's mindset. Even here as he's writing to the Philippians prior to this section of the letter, He's directed the reader's attention to the importance of their God-given minds. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Or again, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love in full accord of one mind mind. Or in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And as we just read in verse 7, Paul says that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. So again, Paul understands the importance of a believer's mindset and the need for a godly mentality. Keep in mind that Paul has just addressed them about feelings of anxiety, right? Back in verse 6, and since worry and anxiety are conditions of the mind, one of the best remedies uh, to push aside those thoughts are to allow healthier thoughts to enter into your mind. See, now we begin to see the connection to these two sections. Paul talks about, hey, don't be anxious about anything. Don't let these anxious thoughts dominate your mentality. But instead, here, think on these things instead. See, the Apostle Paul was concerned about his brothers and sisters and their thought life. So he doesn't simply tell them, hey, look, man, just don't be anxious, right? He says these are things that you should focus on instead. He doesn't tell them, look, just empty your heads, empty your minds, just walk around empty-headed, right? That's really an impossibility. You can't walk around and never think about anything. I know we meet some people that we might think, man, that brother ain't got nothing going on up here. But it's impossible to walk around and not think about Something. Fellas, we lie about this all the time, don't we? When our wives are like, hey, what do you think about? Nothing. Man, you lying. You think about something, right? Paul understood this, right? So he doesn't say just empty your mind. He says instead, focus on these things. Paul challenges them to fill their minds with things that are worthy of the believer's attention, things that are worth considering as followers of Jesus Christ. So what does Paul do? He gives them this list here. He gives them a list of things to meditate on and to consistently think about. And what he does here essentially is he's introducing this important truth here. And here's the truth, that our spiritual stability is a result of how a person thinks, right? What you're able to do, the way that you're able to maintain in this Christian journey, obviously is by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, but it often begins with the way that you think, the way that you think about God, right? First and foremost, what do you think about God? And where are you going to find out who God is? Obviously by turning to his word, right? But what do you think about God? Then it goes from there. Now, what do you think about ethnicity? What do you think about gender? What do you think about politics and government and life in general? Paul challenges them here. He says, man, I'm going to give you a list of things to consider. So he gives them this list of eight virtues that leads to an imperative to think on these things. Or some translations you have may read, dwell on these things. You see, the word used for think or dwell is the Greek word, and I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, it's logizomai, logizomai. And it's very closely linked to where we get our English word for logic, the word logic. So what does Paul want to do? He wants them to really reason with these things, to ponder on them, to consider them, to evaluate them, not just to entertain them briefly, but really sit and think about these things, right? So Paul gives them this wonderful list of virtues. And from studying on this text, from reading several commentators, several biblical scholars, they're all in agreement that this list of virtues is actually a list of virtues or similar. It very much resembles a list of virtues found within the Greek culture. 
So, and there's no doubt that the Apostle Paul did this intentionally. If you remember, here they are in the city of Philippi, a Greco-Roman dominated society, very much a Greek society. So what does he do? He gives them this list of Greek virtues to think upon, right? I love that Paul did that. He was very thoughtful, very strategic in the way he wrote, and, and why wouldn't he be as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Right? So Paul says, here you go, I'm going to give you some things to think about, to consider. Paul is telling them to think on things within the culture, right? within the world around you that are true, honorable, right, pure, all of these things. He says, dwell on those things. And look, for some of you, it's like, ah, the culture, ah, and yeah, I'm with you, I'm with you, right? Look, you don't have to absorb the culture, but we can take some of the good and noble things that surround us and apply them with a biblical worldview. Right? As we look around finding things that are worthy of our thoughts, consideration, and attention, look, it can be difficult, right? Sin has corrupted the world, so because of that, there's a lot of vile, wretched, and ungodly things being glorified these days, isn't it? So you may look at the world around you and think, man, there's not much in this life, in the culture, in this world to be celebrated or to be pondered on or to think about. And, you know, I I certainly would be to a certain extent. I'd be inclined to agree with you. The more that you look around, that list of virtuous things is getting shorter and shorter and shorter each day. There isn't a lot that's deserving of our attention and our focus. I'm going to go ahead and show my hand here. Listen, all these things that we're going to discuss, they're ultimately meant to point us to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all of these things. That's why our minds should be. But there are some things around us that we can think about, that we can ponder on. So as we try to navigate through life, right, and figure out what's, what's worthy of our attention, like the issue becomes how do we know what is excellent? How do we know what is pure? How do we know what is right? How do we know what is true? How do we know what is honorable and all of these things? By what standard do we judge and evaluate these ideas? We know certainly it can't be based on our feelings or our experience, right? Because that's so fluid, like it's constantly changing. It's very inconsistent. So if that's not the way that we judge what is right, pure, excellent, true, how do we determine what is pure, right, honorable, all of these things? And the answer is we, we take what we see, what's in the culture, what's been given to us, what's before us, and we hold it up against the backdrop of the scriptures. We measure it according to God's word. We must ask ourselves, look, does this thing, this thought I'm going to entertain, or this thing that I'm going to put before my eyes, or this thing that I'm attempting to celebrate, does it square, does it align with the word of God? But in order to know that, we have to know and read and understand God's word. We have to be able to evaluate things based on what God says, not what the culture says. Amen? We must examine everything in accordance to the Holy Scriptures. So in our text, what we're going to find here is that Paul has compiled this list of things for believers to think about and to ponder on. And I love what one commentator says about this list. One commentator says this about Paul's list. He says, quote, these things are to serve as guardrails along the narrow path on which we walk, end quote. And I love that. I personally think that is a wonderful way of describing these list, this list of virtues. So here here we have this list. We're going to jump into it. I'm just going to briefly go through each of these. I'm not going to spend a lot of time because honestly, man, each one of these virtues, each one of these ideas could be a sermon in itself. And just for the sake of time, I'm not going to spend 15, 20 minutes digging into each of them. I'll briefly go through these. We'll look at a couple of uh, applications. We'll ask ourselves some questions. And my hope and prayer is that we're all challenged by this, that we leave this place today challenged and compelled to consider the things that we think about and hold them up against the scriptures. So number one, Paul says this. He says, whatever is true. Now, Paul begins by saying, finally, brothers, right? He says that first. Now, we'll stop here quickly. So this lets us know that these are instructions for believers. When he says, finally, brothers, Paul is writing to believers. Again, you have to remember he's writing to the church 
there at Philippi. So this is an apostolic command from Paul to think on these things given to the brethren. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christ follower, this, this is for you. Okay? So Paul begins by saying, whatever is true. Well, what is true? Or maybe the better question is, what is truth? And isn't that the billion-dollar question in 2021? What is truth? You see, we're currently facing a generation where truth is simply based on feelings and experience. People don't ask you anymore, well, is that true? They ask you, how did it make you feel? How did it make you feel? Right? And so now we're at a place where what's true for me is true for me, and then what's true for you is true for you. But that can't be, man. How can this be? That actually defies the very substance of truth itself. There cannot be two objective, legitimate truths on the same subject. It's either true or it isn't. It's either true or it is not. So how do we, as Christ followers, how do we know what is true? And I'm going back to where I always go. It begins by opening your Bible. It begins right here. That is how we know what is true. Truth is found in the Word of God. And this, the Holy Scriptures, God's Word, is what we should be saturated by. And not to say that there aren't things in the culture around us that aren't true, because there certainly are. There are things in the world that are true. However, as God's people, we must be steeped in the Word of God. We must be anchored in His truth so much that we instinctively filter everything we see, everything we hear through the Word of God. That informs the way that we look at the world. That informs the way that we look at culture. You know, I love Daryl Harrison, and he has a quote that says that the Bible is first a mirror on which we are to reflect and look at ourselves, and then it's a window upon which we are to look at the world, right? And I think that's a great quote. Like, the Bible informs the way that we look at the culture. The Bible informs the way that we look at what's true, what's right, what's honorable, what's commendable commendable in all of these things. You see, as we engage in a battle of the mind, it begins with fighting for truth. We must fight for what is true. See, the world loves to bend and twist and manipulate truth. I mean, just think back to the Garden of Eden, right? Wasn't that Satan's tactic? To eat Adam and Eve, like, well, did God actually say, well, yeah, God told us if we ate from this tree, we would die. Man, did God really say that? Man, you're not going to die. God's just holding out on you. And that's been the tactic of the world of Satan from the very beginning, to twist and manipulate the truth. There are a lot of things in this world that are masquerading as truth. They're being packaged and framed and presented as truth, but simply, tr- simply put, they are not. They're not true. They wear the mask of truth, but they are false at the core. See, that's the difficult part is being able to find what is true and what isn't. But I think it was Spurgeon that said it's not being able to tell the difference between what's true and what isn't. It's being able to spot a half-truth, right? And the world is very good at presenting those to us. Things that seem right, it's, it's close, but it's not actually true. And there are even those that present themselves in the world, right, as messengers of the gospel. They claim to be Christ's followers. They claim to be preaching the message of Jesus Christ. But they're actually false teachers. See, but you, we, we won't know that unless we study God's word. Again, it, it, that's where it goes back to. That's how we know what is indeed true. So here's an opportunity to ask yourself, man, are the things that you're thinking about true? You ponder on thoughts that are true, that are legitimate. Are you thinking about things that are false, that are deceptive? things that don't align with God's truth. Brothers and sisters, we are being deceived if we are pondering on what isn't true and what isn't accurate. We must think about what is real, what is true. Jesus prays in John 17, 7. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You see, what is true, what is the truth uh, matters. It's an essential part of the believer's life. That's why Paul begins here with the very first virtue on this list. Man, what is true? What is true? The word true denotes what is actual or what is legitimate about something. So what Paul is doing here is he affirm, he's affirming that whatever is true is the proper line of thinking for the Christian. That's what we should be thinking about. 
We're in a postmodern world, one that denies the existence of objective and absolute truth. So again, we are in a battle for truth, and not just any truth, but to preserve the truth of God's word. That's where we're at. My friends, ponder on what is true. Number two, Paul says this, whatever is honorable, and I'm reading from the ESV, but some versions translate it, whatever is noble, right? Rather than the word honorable, some versions use the word noble. And the Greek word used here is semnos, S-E-M-N-O-S. And this comes from a word meaning to revere or to worship. So this would be something that is worthy of respect or entitled to honor, that which inspires reverence and awe. This word semnos only appears three other times. It's in 1 Timothy 3.8, 1 Timothy 3.11, and Titus 2.2. Now while it's the same word used there in those other instances, it's translated to the word dignified dignified. And I think that's a great definition, right? Thinking about what's dignified, what's worthy of honor, what's worthy of respect and reverence, right? As believers, those are the things that we should be thinking about, things that are admirable, right? Things that are worthy of respect and adoration. There's so many things in the world that are unrespectable, that are not honorable, that are undignified. As Christians, we shouldn't waste our renewed minds on thinking about these things. You see, the opposite of honorable would be dishonorable. Why would we focus our mind on those things? It serves no benefit to the believer. We're not to dwell on things that are dishonorable. Rather, we are called to focus on what is noble and deserving of respect. So what's actually implied with this command is to turn away from those dishonorable things, right? If we're going to focus on what's honorable, we obviously must turn from what is dishonorable, what's vulgar, what's irreverent. You know, even as I think back to this first first virtue, whatever is true, like even if something's true, is it worthy of consideration? Does it line up with the rest of these virtues that we will cover? Is it respectable? Do the things that we think about have an honorable value to them? Does what you think about It's a great place to pause and and stop and think. Does what you think about have the dignity of holiness upon it? Is it befitting of the honor of Christ Jesus? And if the answer is no, you must turn and flee from those thoughts. We must keep our minds, our train of thought, honorable, respectable, what is worthy of Christ Jesus. So, number three, Paul says, whatever is just. Now, some versions will translate whatever is right. Now, the word that is used here is a Greek word, and again, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly. It's dikaios, dikaios, D-I-K-A-I-O-S, dikaios. Now, this word would be whatever meets God's standard of righteousness. That's what it means, whatever is just. What meets God's standard of righteousness, emphasis on God's standard, right? This is a word that uh, refers to whatever is in line with God's eternal and unchanging standard as revealed in his holy word. You know, a lot of times when we hear the word just, we immediately think about what? The word justice, right? We immediately, our minds go there to the word justice. And if that's where your mind just went, I think we're on the right track here. One commentator writes this. He says, attention to whatever is just means fulfilling all that is obligatory in view of certain requirements of justice. So when we're thinking about what is right and just, again, does it square with the word of God? Does it conform to what God deems to be just and right? Again, this is a particularly important discussion for our day and time as we have so many that are on a quest for justice, right? But all the while, they're neglecting how God defines justice. They're totally ignoring a biblical definition of justice according to God's standard. Right? If we're to seek justice, if we're to think about what is just, what is right and true, we must do it according to God's word. Right? We must cling to what is right according to God and not be swayed or blown by every single cultural wind. We must stand firm on the foundation of God's word. So again, I ask you, have you determined what is just and right based on what the world says or what God says? 
Are your thoughts just? Are they right? Are they true? Are you focusing on what is right or what is righteous in the sight of God? Are your thoughts out of step with God's eternal and unchanging standard? And let's focus on what God deems to be righteous. We must have our thoughts be those that are just according to what he calls right. Number four, Paul says, whatever is pure. And man, this one is so crucial that our thoughts be pure. You see, the Greek word used here for pure is hagnos, H-A-G-N-O-S. And it means that which is free from defilement or that which is stainless and contaminated or not contaminated, excuse me. These are things that are morally and inwardly pure, that which is clean and undefiled. You see, what pure really means here in this sense of the word is morally wholesome. You see, this word hagnos is also used to refer to ceremonial and moral purity. So when used ceremonially, it describes that which has been, I want you to listen to this, it describes that which has been so cleansed that it is fit to be brought into the presence of God. That's what our thoughts should be. Right? Again, this world is full of things that are just defiled and filthy. In fact, society really glorifies and promotes and pays tribute to a lot of those things. Friends, we are swimming in a river of corruption. It's nearly everywhere that we turn. The impurity and the filthiness and just the undefiled reality of this world. It's, and guess what? It's right at our fingertips. In fact, we carry it around in our pockets, don't we? It's very accessible, just the filth and the impurity. So many times we stumble when our thoughts are soiled by impurity. It becomes this slippery slope, right? If we begin to focus on the things that aren't pure, again, that, that's going to start to manifest in your behaviors. Those impure thoughts are a slippery slope. It's a dangerous game. We must not allow our thinking to be soiled by impurity. We think of the word pure, look, right, a lot of us, most of us, where do our minds immediately go, right? We're immediately taken to the call for sexual purity, right? As followers of Christ, we are indeed to keep our bodies undefiled and abstain from sexual sin. Ephesians 3, 4 says this, but sexual impurity and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among saints. But then Paul goes on here and he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. And then in 1 Timothy 5.22, he says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, but what? Keep yourself pure. You're not to associate with sin. That's, that's the call to purity. It goes beyond just our bodies. It's our thought life. It's the things we look at, right? We are not to associate with sin. We're not to pursue it. We're to be separated from sin and corruption and impurity. It has no place among the life of the believer. And again, that's beyond your external behaviors. We must consider the things that we're entertained by, right? The things we watch and put in front of our eyes. The things we listen to. Right? The things that we talk about, are they pure? Right? This is a challenge to all of us. Again, this is challenging to me. There have been times in my life where I laugh at something. And it's like, yeah, it's funny, but should it be? Would you laugh at that in the presence of God? As one who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ, is that something that's fruitful, that's edifying for the life of the believer? Should you be entertained by the things for which Jesus died? answer is no. When you're sitting down, right, consider this. This is a practical application. This is something simple you can do. When you're sitting down, think to yourself, this thing that I'm about to watch or listen to or engage with, is this going to lead me to thoughts of purity? Does this defile or is this pure? Will my thinking be corrupted if I give attention to this thing? Is this something that is fit for the presence of God? Is it edifying for one that has been redeemed and purified again by the blood of Christ? 
As Christians, our minds are to be set on things that are pure. Our thoughts should be so clean that they could even withstand the scrutiny of God. Now, of course, we're not going to be able to do that perfectly 100% of all, all the time, right? We are still living in unredeemed bodies, so we will sin. We will have thoughts that are less than glorifying, less than honoring to God. And look, I know that there are believers in here today. I know that there are believers in this church, every church down the road, all across the world that struggle with this daily. There are believers who struggle with the purity of their thoughts and their actions every single day. Listen, I want you to know you're not alone in that. I've been there. I have been there. It happens, right? But this is a battle for the mind. We must be dependent upon God and his spirit to win this battle of the mind. Listen, I want you to know if you're in here today and you're struggling with that, right? If you're at a place where like, yo, this is my battle each and every day. This is my reality. I want you to talk to someone before you leave. Don't ever feel like you you have to hide in shame or that you can't share that with somebody. There are brothers and sisters in this room today that would be more than happy to walk beside you. Amen? At least I hope there are. I'm at least talking to my, uh, my members here, right? That's what we do for the body. That's what we do for brothers and sisters. Number one, talk to somebody. Number two, be encouraged knowing that God does not call us to do things that his spirit won't empower us to do. So if he's called us here to think purely, to have pure thoughts by the power of his spirit, we can win that battle for God's glory, right? And God has called us to a life of holiness and godliness, and that begins with our thought life. We must think on whatever is pure. Number five, Paul says, whatever is lovely. Now, this word lovely is only found here. It is not used anywhere else in all the scriptures. The term that is translated lovely means causing pleasure or delight, what is pleasing or agreeable. This refers to things that are lovable, things that are endearing, charming, and winsome. You see, when we look around us, what are some things that we would consider to be lovely? And not just lovely to us, but things that would be lovely to God. You know, in my mind, I immediately go to creation, right? I immediately think of like a mountaintop view, view from the mountain, or I think of maybe a a sunset over the ocean, how beautiful, how lovely is God's creation. Or I even think about the lovely attitudes or attributes of humanity, right? Compassion, kindness, sympathy, tenderness, all of these things. For those of you who know, my wife just gave birth to our son, Jeremiah Joseph. I think about life. I think about holding my newborn. I think about my uh, mother's love for her child. These are things that are lovely. These are things that we can ponder on, right? Things that are lovely, they just naturally draw our attention. And those things, things like that that are lovely, aren't just lovely to us. They're lovely to God as well. And those are the things that we should ponder on. Those are the things we should be attracted to. And the world presents a lot of things as, as being attractive. And if we're not careful, we will fail to guard our minds and we will be quickly drawn into temptation and given over to these thoughts and behaviors that are far from lovely. So what would be far from lovely? What's the opposite of something lovely? Well, I would say that it's something ugly and unappealing, right? So I just, we named a few things that are really lovely and, and, and great to ponder on. What are some things that aren't lovely, some things that are ugly, some things that are unappealing? How about like murder, hatred, violence, deception, bickering, division, filthiness, impurity? None of those things are lovely. They're not lovely. They're not edifying. They're not fruitful for the life of the believer. And they're not pleasing or honoring to God. These things only corrupt a believer's mind and a believer's thoughts. So again, ask yourself today, are my thoughts lovely? Are they pleasing? Are they endearing? Are they charming? Are they agreeable? Set your minds on what is lovely according to God. Number six, Paul says, whatever is commendable. So the Greek word used here is euphemos, euphemos, E-U-P-H-E-M-O-S. And this is a combination of two words, and it essentially translates to good report or good repute. This is the only place in all of the New Testament where this word 
appears. This word speaks of something that has a good reputation, something that people would speak well about. These would be things that are highly regarded, things that are worthy of thinking about. So are the things that you're thinking about or engaged in, would you call them commendable? Would you consider them worthy of notoriety? Are your thoughts deserving of praise? Are you thinking about things? Are you entertained by things? Are you engaging in things that you in good conscience would recommend to another believer? Again, I go back to the verse that we just read in Ephesians 5, and it talks about foolish talk and all of that impurity, right? Foolish talk isn't commendable. Gossip isn't commendable. Crude joking isn't commendable. Impurity, filthiness, those those things aren't commendable. We shouldn't recommend them, or we shouldn't partake in them in our own lives, and we certainly shouldn't recommend them to others. You see, these might be things, this filthiness, crude joking, all of these impure things, right? They might be in high regard amongst the world, but it should not be so amongst believers. You see, whatever is well spoken of, whatever is of a good report, whatever does have a good reputation here in the world, we must look at it in accordance with the Word of God. We must examine things that are actually fit for the believer, those things that are deserving of our commendation and our consideration. We have to examine everything. All right, so Paul gives this wonderful list here. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. All right, and so after he compiles this list of virtues for the believers there at Philippi, Paul now reinforces the significance of these virtues with two phrases. And this is what he says. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, You see, these last two phrases really act as a summation of the previous six virtues. So what Paul is doing here is simply saying, look, all of these things that I've just mentioned, those are the things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Right? Now, the word that's used here for excellence is areet or arete, A-R-E-T-E. It's it's, uh, only used here in all of Paul's letter. This is the only place he uses the word excellence. It does not appear in any of his other writings. And this word that is uh, used for excellence, it refers to excellence of character or an exceptional virtue. So this speaks of moral excellence or something of extreme merit. You see, in the Greek culture, philosophers would use that word to describe the fulfillment of something. You see, in displaying that type of excellence invited recognition that would lead to renown and glory. So Paul says, man, whatever is excellent, if there's anything excellent, if you can find things that are excellent, think on those things. Now, while Paul only uses this word here in his letter to the Philippians, Peter uses this same word for excellence in his second letter, 2 Peter 1.3. Peter writes, his divine power, speaking of God, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So Peter uses the word excellence here and he attributes it to the character of God. So when we consider what is excellent, we must do so in light of who God is, in light of God's excellence, in light of what God deems to be glorious and true. We must not consider any thoughts or behaviors that are not in line with God's moral virtues as revealed to us in the scriptures. Paul says, look, man, if if there's anything, excellence. If there is anything worthy of praise. Now, let's look at that phrase briefly for a minute. Worthy of praise is the Greek word epainos, epainos. It's a tough one. E-P-A-I-N-O-S. And this literally translates to praise upon It's something that's deserving of praise or approval. It's worth our commendation. It's worth our recognition. Listen, praise and approval were highly sought after within the Greek culture. And guess what? They're highly sought after today, aren't they? Praise and approval. Man, we love to be applauded. 
We love to be uh, approved. We love to be elevated. We love to be praised and honored, right? However, when we consider things that are worthy of praise, we must remember the purpose behind this term. We must understand the intent behind the word praise is ultimately for the commendation of God. That's what it's for. So we must ask ourselves again, is this thought or this thing, is this something that I would applaud or praise in the presence of God? Is this something I would commend and approve in God's presence? Would he deem this worthy of praise? So after Paul lays out this list of virtues, now he says if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, do what? Think on these things. He tells us to think on these things. Or maybe, again, your version might read, dwell on these things. You see, this is a command, a directive, an imperative given by the Apostle Paul. This command to think on these things requires readers to actually give careful thought to a matter, to genuinely consider something, to ponder on it, to let their mind dwell on these things. We are challenged by this. We are to be attentive, reflective, meditative thinkers. Christians, use the mind that God's given you. Amen? And sometimes I feel like we're afraid to do that. What was the old slogan? A mind is a terrible thing to waste, right? I feel like sometimes as, as believers, we're, we're wasting our minds. And this is a command to think, ponder, consider, reflect, meditate on these things. Listen, there are a lot of things that we could think about. There's a lot of ideas, there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of just stuff that fills our minds, right? In fact, according to research, on average, we have about 10,000 thoughts that go through our mind every day. Now, I don't know how in the world they figured that out. I don't know how they did that research, but this is the number that they came up with. Apparently, we have about 10,000 thoughts per day. That's a lot of thinking, right? We do a lot of thinking on an average day. What we need to do is use those minds that God has given to us. As Christ followers, as those with renewed minds, we are to find, to filter, and to focus on all that is noble, all that is right, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. See, as we look at the culture around us, I don't believe the world is totally ignorant to what is good and virtuous. The world has some semblance of good, right? Though it has been distorted in a lot of ways, the world does know very well what is good. And we as Christians, we should know what is good, but we should know it even better. We should know it in light of the gospel, in light of the word of God. And again, we have to measure everything that appears to be virtuous, to be true, to be commendable, all of these things in accordance up against God's word. So I want you to take a minute and just consider this list of virtues. Think about these things we just discussed. Consider this list of virtues. Now consider the things that you actually dwell on daily. Do they pass these tests? Are they in line with or contrary to what the Bible teaches us is right and true and lovely and pure? Do your thoughts square with the Bible? Do they reflect the holiness of God? Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, he writes this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. See, Paul challenges his readers, and I hope that we are all challenged today as well, to seek, to think on, and to engage with things that are excellent and worthy of praise, to have this kingdom mindset. Right? Well, I love what Paul does here. He, he kind of shifts gears a little bit, but it's all connected. It ties together so beautifully. Paul doesn't simply stop with the thoughts of the believer. He is also concerned with the behaviors of those within the body. This isn't just a call to godly thinking. This is also a call to holy living. We are instructed to think on these things, but we're also instructed to practice them as well. Let's look at verse Nine. It says, whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, 
Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul first began by addressing the minds of the Philippians and what they think about. Again, what you think about matters. I think we understand that, right? But here's why what you think about matters so greatly. Again, because what you ponder on is what you will practice. Your thoughts, the things that you're constantly considering and focusing your mind on will eventually manifest through your behaviors. It's not merely enough to think in a godly fashion, although that is often where the battle begins, but we must practice godliness and holiness. We must practice godly living. My apologies to Alan Iverson, but yes, we're talking about practice. Some of y'all, some of y'all that missed you. But yes, we're talking about practice, and practice matters. Paul commands them to think about excellent and honorable, honorable things, but you must practice them as well. You must practice them as well. Paul says, look, here are some things to think on. Now, here are some things to do, right? He tells them to practice the things that they had learned, received, heard, and seen in him. But what are those things? What did they learn, received, seen, and heard in the Apostle Paul? Well, the short answer is they had seen the gospel. They had seen the life in Christ Jesus. They had learned the gospel from Paul. They'd received the gospel from Paul. They'd heard him preach the gospel, and they'd seen him live a life worthy of Christ Jesus, devoted to making Jesus known despite his circumstances. Paul lived a gospel-centered life in glory to Christ Jesus, and that's what they saw in him. And he urges them, he challenged them, practice that. Think about these things, but now practice this. Practice what you've seen in me. And what they'd seen in Paul was all that was true and pure and right and commendable. And that's not because Paul was somehow this standard model of perfection. Sure, Paul sinned. We we know Paul made mistakes. But Paul was simply following the call of Christ, following Jesus in obedience. And he says, man, practice that. The things that you've seen, learned, heard, received from me. I think uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or even if we go back one chapter in Philippians 3.17, Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. See, Paul's ultimate desire was for his churches to walk in faithful obedience to Christ Jesus, to follow him above all else. As followers of Jesus Christ, as those that proclaim his name, we are living as witnesses to Jesus Christ. Amen. Our lives are living testimonies to our allegiance to Christ. We're only going to be effective witnesses as the bride of Christ so far as we make a practice of holiness and godliness. See, it's not simply enough to think like Christ. We must live like Christ as well. So Paul, who lived this gospel-centered life, one that was worthy of the majesty of Jesus, he tells the Philippians, look, imitate what you've learned, received, and seen in me. His life was worth imitating. And here's again, here again is a great place for you to pause, for us to stop, reflect, and say, man, am I this kind of example? Am I living like Paul? Am I an example that I would want others to follow? Now, you may say, man, I really, really want to be. I really want to be, but are you? Am I really, truly living a life that is worth imitating? Am I practicing holiness? Am I living a life that is worthy of Christ Jesus? And not just on Sunday mornings, not just when you're here, but when others aren't around. You know, if I had a camera crew and you didn't know, and I just followed you around for the week. First of all, that'd be really creepy and probably illegal. (laughs) But if if I did that, if I took a camera and followed you around, or here's something even scarier, man, if I could get inside that head, read those thoughts, are they honoring to Christ Jesus? Are you living a life that's worthy of him, one that is worth imitating? Paul says, ponder on these things first. Now, practice these things as well. Listen, I want to make something clear. Paul is not teaching legalism, right? If we know anything about the Apostle Paul, he understood grace by faith, right? 
or excuse me, salvation by grace through faith, I should say. Paul understood that. So he's not teaching that our thoughts or even our behaviors are salvific, right? He's simply shedding light on the need for godly thinking because it leads to godly living, right? There's a correlation there. Paul says, think on these things and then practice them. The way that you think is eventually going to lead to the way that you live. And as we come to the end of verse 9, there's a beautiful promise there at the end of verse 9. Let's read it again. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, if we go back to where we began, if we go back to verse 7, right? Paul writes there about the peace of God guarding the hearts and minds of believers. But here in verse 9, he directs our attention to the God of peace. So there was the peace of God. Now it's the God of peace. When we as believers think about these excellent and these praiseworthy things, when we put them into practice, we enjoy the presence and the peace of God. We enjoy the presence of the God of peace. Brothers and sisters, all of this leads to peace enjoyed. And this isn't a peace that you have to hope for or wait for in the, in the future. It's a peace that's ever-present right now. You can enjoy that peace with God right now. And why does Paul call him that? Why does Paul refer to God as the God of peace? And the reason is because God made peace with sinful humanity. He made peace with us. We didn't make peace with God. All we did was rebel. Right? He's the one that makes peace with us. I think Romans 5.1, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what? We now have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not simply a peace as far as a feeling of serenity. That means we're not at war with Creator God anymore. Right? He's made peace on our behalf through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this peace. I mean, that's all an act of God's doing. He's the one that's made peace with sinners. Because of his grace, we are able to be in fellowship with him. And you see, when the God of peace is present, the peace of God rules in the hearts and minds of his people. See, as we prepare to close our time together, again, I want you all to see that Jesus is the full fulfillment, the completion, the perfection of all of these things. These virtues, what is pure, what is right, what is honorable, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is just, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. And we know that because Paul's purpose in writing these letters is to exalt Christ Jesus above everything else. So when he points our minds and our practices to these things, it's to exalt Christ Jesus. That's the purpose of this letter. We know that Jesus Christ is whatever is true. John 14, 6, we know that Jesus is honorable, the Lamb of God deserving all honor and glory, Revelations 5, 12. We know that Jesus is just, for he is the righteous judge, John chapter 5. We know that Jesus is pure, 1 John 3, 3. We know that Jesus is lovely, for he is the visible image of the invisible God, and in him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell, Colossians 1, 15 and 19. We know that Jesus is commendable, for his name is above all other names, Philippians 2.9. We know that Christ is excellent, for he has called us into his glory and excellence, 2 Peter 1.3. And of course, Jesus, as the spotless lamb of God, is totally worthy of praise, John 1.29. Christ is the fulfillment of these things. Amen? Amen. 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 Christ Jesus is the perfect embodiment of these virtues. He is all that is excellent. He is all that is praiseworthy. His humility, his sacrifice, his love, and his obedience displayed at the cross are worthy of the highest praise and the greatest exaltation. All that is right, all that is true, all that is lovely, commendable, etc., etc., etc. Everything that we find in this world that is worth celebrating, that is commendable, that is right, is true. And they're just glimpses of the glory and majesty of Christ Jesus. I want to encourage you, friends, brothers, and sisters, to dwell on the glorious realities, the glorious and excellent 
and praiseworthy and honorable realities of our Savior that is Christ Jesus. And to make a practice of imitating him and living a holy and godly and gospel-centered life for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the truth of these texts and what's been communicated here today through your word. Father, I hope that we are each challenged to consider our thought life, to consider the things that roll around in our minds, and to be focused on what is of the most excellence and what is deserving of the greatest praise, and that is you, Christ Jesus. And Lord, as we go into the world, as we look at the things that are surround us, the things that are put in front of us, we would measure them according to your standard. God, help us not to be focused on, on so much brokenness or so much frailty or impurity or things that are dishonorable, but instead to remember all that we have and all that we are in Christ Jesus and to see his majesty and his excellence on display in this world. Help us to be people that are committed to that, to surrender to your lordship, to love you and to know you, God, and to make you known throughout this world. Father, I pray for those that are in here today that may not know that you're the God of peace, It may not be covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that from the time we've had here together this morning that something was said or something was done that would lead them to you. God, that you would use this time, this gathering, this fellowship to draw them to yourself. And they would understand why Jesus Christ is excellent and worthy of praise. Father, we thank you. I ask for the rest of the time we have here together that we uplift and exalt your name. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.